1: Hello and welcome to Seriously, the podcast from the new statesman that takes pop culture seriously.
2: I'm Caroline Crampton.
1: And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, we're going to be talking about the Netflix original series Santa Clarita Diet and the biopic
2: Loving. Anna has also played the mobile game 80 Days for the first time, so she'll be telling us how that went later in the show. Hello. Welcome back to another
1: episode of Seriously.
2: So I think I had possibly my first ever like negative seriously related experience <laughs> this week. It's not even really. and <laughs> Fake negative. It's fake negative. Like, we'll run with it. So my friend Dave, who I know listens to this. Hi, Dave. Hello, was, Dave. Was kind of upset that, as per our Twitter poll a few weeks ago, we are not doing the OC as the subject of our next Seriously quiz. Yeah, that is sad. Yeah, Harry Potter just triumphed again, though, didn't it? People I know. People really love the Harry Potter quiz.
1: People love the Harry Potter quiz, and it is a really good quiz. So if you'd like to come, don't forget that tickets are going on sale on the 15th of February at noon. Get your tickets then.
2: We'll share links on all our social media. And it's happening on the 14th of March, the next one, the next Harry Potter quiz. This will probably be our last Harry Potter one for a while. We're not saying we're never gonna do one again, but there are definitely (laughs) other quizzes we want to do. So Yeah, stay tuned, because there are lots of exciting things in the works. So we've also had, as ever, lots of emails from you lovely listeners. One of my favourites this week comes from Catherine, and the subject is just Fen. And then four exclamation marks. She says, As a long-time fan of the podcast, I've always enjoyed how much our opinions on various parts of pop culture align. Thanks to you, I've also been introduced to many new things. I was therefore so, so pleasantly surprised to find you were about to talk about the wonderful volume of short stories, *Fen* in your most recent episode. I have also become a more recent fan of Daisy and her work, the books by Daisy Johnson. I was lucky enough to hear her speak at one of the meetings of the writing circle to which I belong in Oxford back in September. And without even yet reading her stories, became an immediate fan. She read out a passage from the second story you talked about, the one with the coven of cannibals. And I was instantly hooked. Needless to say, I bought Fenn immediately and asked her to sign it. Oh, that's really sweet. So... Yeah, this is a really lovely email, and thank you very much, Catherine, for confirming what, you know, we already knew, which is that Fenn and Daisy are really, really great. <laughs> uh, yeah, and actually, on the subject of short stories, it's only just February, and we've done, like, two volumes of short stories already you know, on the podcast this year. on it. So this one's from Nathan, who says, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Thanks so much for recommending The Shore by Sarah Taylor. I never usually read short stories, but this was wonderful. She creates such relatable and evocative characters so quickly, and... And the way that stories weave together make you want to read the next chapter. Yeah, that's so true. That's absolutely sums it up, really. And also, kind of how I feel about short stories as well. You know, love them when I actually get prompted to read them. Never really find them on my own.
1: I know. So we're doing some good work here. I also have to thank everyone who emailed in to remind me what the short story was that I mentioned in relation to Fen about a mother who gives birth to a fox. It is called... My Daughter the Fox,
2: (laughs) could have remembered that one, by Jackie Kay. So yeah, a few people on Twitter got in touch and by email to tell us that. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Forever, it's like outsourcing
1: my brain. It's It's great. Great. (laughs) It's
2: so good to have a place where you can be like... This question that I can't Google, but that I really need to know the answer to, and have like other human brains you can connect with. Though maybe Daughter Fox short story would have been enough <laughs> on this particular occasion, but yeah. I didn't. I didn't quite
1: get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thanks everyone so much. So the first thing we're going to talk about this week is Santa Clarita Diet, a suburban comedy horror series from Netflix. It follows the timid realtor, or estate agent as we say over here, Sheila played by Drew Barrymore, and her husband, Joel, who's played by Timothy Oliphant. After a mysterious sickness transforms Sheila into a literal man-eating zombie hungry for human flesh, the couple desperately attempt to keep their lives as normal as possible.
0: Our life was amazing. But something happened to my wife. I can't feel my heartbeat. What? She threw up this i didn't have formaldehyde so i saved it in olive oil that was a crazy amount of vomit well i'm not a medical expert it was a huge amount she's acting different i can cook that for you sweetheart
1: i'm fine did mom die
0: she is dead and also undead Uh, zombie i don't like that word i think it's inherently negative i don't like it either let's not use it I do like the way that I feel. I have endless energy and I sleep two hours a night. I get so much done.
1: You eat people.
0: I know. It's just that I'm so much more confident. I can parallel
2: park in one move now. So I watched the pilot a couple of weeks ago. I watched the first two episodes. Better than me. The pilot plus one more. Mostly because although I didn't totally fall in love with it during the first episode, it's got quite a kind of repetitive formula, this show. So... I was like, oh, I can just take another one of these now. That's you know. good,
1: because I've heard a few, and I, we often say this about TV, but I've heard a few people say, first episode, okay, later episodes, good.
2: Yeah, so this is what I have come across in the few things I've read. There was quite a good review on Vogue.com, actually, that blotted this out, and they're saying that... So, spoilers henceforth for Santa Clarita Diet there's quite an interesting pivot at the end of episode 2 that then really like takes it up a notch when Drew Barrymore's character experiments with different ways of satiating her new hunger so because she doesn't want to murder people mm-hmm. she, so doesn't she doesn't want to eat human flesh to survive human flesh, so she tries eating raw meat um, her husband who is very supportive and really wants her to be okay he at great expense sources her like an actual dead body from a hospital morgue to try but she's like mm, it's too dead it's got to be like either alive or just dead she tries she tries eating a live chicken no good can't do it and so at the end of episode 2 they're in bed and they have this conversation and he's like we're gonna have to kill people Mm. she's like yeah we're gonna have to kill people in the same way that two people in bed in a kind of suburban sitcom might be like we're gonna have to get the garage door fixed yeah 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 <laughs> and that apparent so i haven't watched beyond that but apparently that really steps it up a notch and people have started have compared it to dexter yeah i was gonna say it's becoming very
1: much more like a dexter yeah i have to sit. i have to kill people but i don't want to kill good people
2: yes style. exactly so um in one of the episode synopses i read They then go on to try and like find bad people so that, you know, Mm. she doesn't feel guilty about murdering people and then (laughs) eating them. And there's some line where she says like, I just want like a really young, bad Hitler. Um, (laughs) I really hope
1: that there's a turn later in this series where they're like, turns out stuff isn't black and white.
2: Well, so apparently their cop neighbor, they find out from him that a pedophile or someone on the sex offenders register recently moved into their neighborhood. Mm. And they're like, hmm. Nom, nom, nom. (laughs) Oh
1: God, it's awful, isn't it? I have to say the first episode for me was a little bit ropey. Mm. One thing I found really hard to get through was Timothy Oliphant's performance who literally, there's a scene where Drew Barrymore's character, Sheila, vomits copiously and then it seems to be dead on the floor and he has to like go in and like see his dead wife on the floor and it's obviously the moment that like, actors actors are really waiting for they can be like no my wife my beautiful wife and he like literally looks like he's trying not to laugh the entire
2: time <laughs> well, and you're like covered in fake robots.
1: i know and i'm sure it was a really funny thing to film but you'd still hope that the like mm. corners of his mouth wouldn't be twitching <laughs> when he's meant to be like mourning his wife's death though obviously you do you can see why because he, he plays such intense characters usually and you can see why they've cast him as it goes on because he's this seemingly normal guy absolutely struggling to keep it all together and you know I've seen clips in trailers and stuff where they're like trying to bury a vat of blood and he's like really funny yeah exactly and he's like through gritted teeth being like um okay honey and like that's the kind of performance you can imagine him doing really well at the beginning they're like genuinely normal guy who like might be grieving for a sick wife
2: he can't replay really that, I'd say. <laughs> that set piece actually is really, really funny. Sheila, the first person that she eats is this annoying new coworker that they've got. Yeah, this is played by
1: Nathan Fillion, right? Yes. From Firefly and Dr. Horrible and stuff really well. But he is like a
2: cartoon villain that you would never meet in real life. So after she's like eaten all she can of him, they have this like sloppy mess left in a big Tupperware box mm. and they go out into the countryside To try and bury it. It's like a crate. It's massive. It's a a massive crate. But while they're doing this, they're having an argument about the fact that she couldn't find the lid, which is, I think, probably a very familiar argument to couples Mm. everywhere who, if you're like me and you like hoard mismatched Tupperware... And then you can never find the right lid and maybe your partner finds this really annoying about you. Uh, They're basically having this exact (laughs) argument where he's like, it would have been really good if we could have had the lid right now. And she's like, well, I couldn't find it. I'm not going back to look for it. And then later on in the episode, she's like, I did find that lid, by the way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and they're they're arguing also, well, he's like digging the hole about um you know someone that they know is gonna sell their house and it would be a great deal because they're both realtors together so it's this real mixing of like two tropes or two genres rather like that suburban satire that you see in like edward scissorhands and desperate housewives and stuff of like the pastel perfect houses and they're trying to sell those houses and then you've also got the like strain of really really over the top horror and i quite like that this is still a series about two people trying to keep up appearances Mm. which is basically what all suburban stories are about like people trying to look good for the neighbors they're trying to do that it's just that the thing that they're trying to suppress is the fact that Sheila is a cannibal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was actually surprised how much this reminded me of the film of Bewitched that we watched a while ago. Oh yeah, with Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman. In the sense, no zombies in that movie. No zombies in that movie, but a witch. And in the sense that in the original Bewitched series, it was all about her trying to like keep her magic secret. So yeah, that it's true. They portrayed the perfect fifties domestic life. Mm-hmm. And there's something of that here as well. Also, commonality with that is that. At least what I've read and seen so far, no one explains the zombie thing. No, in the same not at way all. that n- there was no like larger magical structure to bewitched. Mm. It was just like Samantha- magic. Samantha's a witch now sitcom it's the same thing it's like sheila's a zombie here we go kind yeah of thing.
1: she just gets mysteriously sick she doesn't seem to be bitten or anything like there's no they're not really bothered about the like mythology of it no but they do do a similar thing in that they're like using it as sort of a metaphor where you know there's a couple of throwaway comments early on where sheila is like oh jennifer lawrence just got her hair cropped into a pixie cut even though everyone hates it i wish i could be as brave as her and she's like never going for cocktails with her neighbors like she's basically quite repressed and then there's some like weird pseudo babble where like the the kid who lives next door is like zombies are motivated by their id Mm. they only care about their desires and so she's become a completely different style of person to how she was presented in the opening scenes so there's that whole idea of like suburbia crushing your independent spirit i guess going on as well
2: Yeah, that's true. And there are some gendered aspects of it as well. There's definitely the the kind of man eater. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you know, there's there is a bit where after she's eaten the first guy and her husband is still kind of annoyed because he was coming on to his wife and he wasn't like he tried to stand up to him in the bar and he Mm. kind of got outclassed a bit, whatever. And she's like, if it helps. I did eat one of his balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The character that I, I'm interested to know more about is their daughter. Yeah, same. So they have a teenage daughter who is made, well, so far of what I've seen, she's mostly there to add emphasis to the, quote, normalness. Mm. Because, you know, it isn't a, a teenage obsession. Like, I just want to be normal. Mm. Um, and that is now her parents' obsession as well. Because they're like, everything is just going to be normal. We definitely don't murder people and keep them in our freezer. yeah. But I still don't know whether this is going to be a show I continue with or whether it's going to be one of the many that like fall by the wayside of got to watch the next thing for the next seriously, Don't have time to watch do and more, eat more fingers.
1: Yeah, it's already fallen that way for me. A mixed, a mixed bag of different human organs. Mm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would <laughs> emphasize though, for people who are thinking about watching this, the grossness is funny by and large. It's just quite graphic. Yeah, just don't have
1: like some deconstructed sausages on your plate. Yeah. before you start watching.
2: yeah actually i did read one critic say that it made her consider vegetarianism. <laughs> oh god
0: hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. It's a feeling like a bonacantine got a heartbeat like we're on the 16. <gasps>
2: Now we're going to talk about Loving, which is a film based on the real lives of Richard and Mildred Loving, a couple from Virginia in the US who became the subject of a landmark Supreme Court ruling on interracial marriage in 1967. This film is directed by Jeff Nichols and stars Joel Edgerton and Ruth Neger as the titular couple. It's an adaptation of a 2011 documentary by Nancy Bursky called The Loving Story which followed the Lovings and their various court battles.
0: I'm going to take Mildred up to DC to get married. Are you sure about that? By the power vested in me by the District of Columbia, I now pronounce you husband and wife. In here? Richard! What you doing in bed with that woman? I'm his wife. That's no good here. Richard Perry loving, being a white person, and Mildred Jeter, being a colored person, did unlawfully cohabitate as man and wife. Richard? That ain't place! I believe this is a battle that could go all the way to the Supreme Court. I mean, we ain't hurt anybody. The state of Virginia will argue that it is unfair to bring children of mixed race into the world. Tell that woman to come out here.
1: So you sort of class this as another Oscar-nominated biopic, right? Yeah, it's in the classic spot release-wise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the based on a true story, everything. But I felt like watching it, it didn't tonally... Mm. sit with those things. It's quite a, like, quiet movie. It's not very cheesy. Everything's very understated. So you get to know this couple, Mildred and Richard, and they're they're quite an unassuming couple, right? Neither of them are people of many words, and... Their love for each other is really, really clear, but they're not, like, a notebook-style couple who are going to have these, like, great, grand declarations of how they feel about each other all the time. And I think some of the most moving lines in this film are just things like, I love my wife. And I like that about this, because I feel like the tone of the film therefore sort of reflects the couple, because it's quite easy to turn this... Especially because this couple did interviews in Life magazine, and they were pretty well-known during the time of the court cases. It's quite easy to turn this into, like a big loud flashy story and i like that it it's a very human story and it's a very family based story and it's actually kind of kills you with its quietness
2: it really does and the landscape is so important in it as well that they're from rural virginia and all they want from life is to be able to be married and raise their family where they grew up in the like beautiful fields and countryside near their parents mm-hmm. who both you know still live really near where they want to live and the kind of cruelty of the US legal system at the time was that although they could be legally married in Washington DC which didn't have any restrictions on interracial marriage in Virginia did so when they went back home to set up house and start their family the sheriff like stole into their house in the night dragged them off to prison and they were told that either you go to prison for a year or you never ever come back to Virginia Mm -hmm. and that actually scene I thought was really effective because that is a moment of high drama when you know you see them go to bed and they're like peacefully asleep they're at the time they're staying in her parents house so there's lots of other people sleep in the house as well and then the sheriff and his men like creep silently into the house like burglars mm. and it's such an effective metaphor because it's like to the sheriff Richard and Mildred's relationship is a crime but looking at the scene what the sheriff is doing is a crime it looks like a burglary yeah or like they're gonna kidnap them or something mm-hmm so that particular scene actually reminded me really strongly of quite a famous South African play, which is called Statements After an Arrest Under the Immorality Act. It's by um, a guy called atol Fugard, and it was first premiered in 1972. And it's about exactly that moment because um, South Africa had similar like, um laws outlawing interracial marriage during apartheid and the play is literally just about in this case i think it's a white woman and a a black man it's all set in the room where they're having their illicit quote relationship and it's all them like worried that people are coming think they can see someone coming through the window worried about how they're going to sneak off and the whole play is just set in this one room of their relationship but it resonates with all the stuff that they know is going to happen to them when morning Mm. comes essentially it was also controversial at the time because I think in the first staging they did the whole thing like in near nudity because you know it's lovers in a play so it would be but yeah so that was controversial as well but that reminded me so strongly of that that like sneaking in at night into the house where the apparently illegal couple are all this stuff and that scene even though it's so pivotal in the film even that is kind of underplayed and quiet and the music is very remote and Mm. yeah
1: I saw Certain Women by Kelly Reichardt recently and kind of reminded me of that in that the dialogue is minimal, the rural setting steps up and gives you something that the dialogue isn't giving you. You can just contrast it so much with so many, like, something like Lion or Gold that I saw, which are these cheesier movies. I think especially Gold, like, every line was so overdone. There's two really, really similar scenes where in gold Matthew McConaughey gets like some sticks and some rope and it takes her to a field and it's like what do you think I thought the kitchen could be here and the bedroom could be here in loving Richard takes Mildred to this bit of land that he's bought and he's like what do you think this is your new home basically so the the involvement of like place in relationship is working in a similar way in both films but loving is just so much more successful mm. at doing it it's just much better done having said that There were a few moments in this film which I did feel like almost belonged to another film. Mm. So there's, like, a weird, like, tableau of, like, urban drama where she's, like, worried about... They move to DC because they can be legally married there. It's where they got married. They're really unhappy there and... There's this weird sort of intense scene where like Richard's working on a construction site and you think something's going to fall and hit his head. Meanwhile, all the kids are playing in the street and you think one of the kids is going to get like run down by a car and eventually it's the kid that gets hit by the car, but they're fine and Richard narrowly escapes this sort of thing falling. And it was just so weirdly dramatic compared to some of the other stuff in the film. And I also feel like we don't really need to be given a reason that dramatic for them wanting to go home. Like They have a right to go home Mm -hmm. and we all know that and we all know that they'd be much happier at home. So I kind of felt like that weird bit was a bit unnecessary. It almost felt like it was trying to push us into being like, well, it's a life or death situation. They've got to go home.
2: Yeah, that's true. Whereas actually just, you know, having... Been away for ten years and having had three children, it's entirely reasonable that she should want to live wherever she wants. Mm
1: -hmm, That she's had enough. And similarly with the scenes with the lawyers. Mm. So eventually, Mildred writes a letter to Bobby Kennedy, and then they get the American Civil Liberties Union to support them, and they get a lawyer sent to them. But he's not that experienced, and there's this whole comedy scene where he like borrows someone's office and has to like put his own name tag in there, and he has to ask for help from this other lawyer who's a bit like, "Do you know what you're doing? No." And these are sort of comedy actors in comedy roles and they're so different to Richard and Mildred. And at times I was like, wow, these, these scenes from like a completely different film mm. that
2: didn't quite like come together for me. But part of that I think is good in the sense that the reason the ACLU support the case is because they hear about it quite by chance. But they recognise that this is like a an emblematic case they could use to overturn laws in lots of states beyond Virginia. So they want Richard and Mildred to pursue it as a legal action, as a kind of constitutional changing, like progress in America thing. Yeah. Whereas Richard and Mildred just want to get the ban on them living in Virginia overturned, so they can never ever have to speak to a lawyer again.
1: Yeah, they they want to be a normal family and there are lines when mildred is like i do think it's wrong and i I don't think it's right and i want to help people and she does clearly have that impulse in her richard is a lot more like just want to you know get what's mine and sort that out Mm. but i do think you're right in that there's this idea that the lawyers want to bring them along in their sweeping narrative the violins are starting to play this could go all the way to the supreme court and they're not really going they're just sort of saying like we're not going to come to the supreme court but we'll be really pleased if it happens and we'll probably shed a tear when you ring us on the phone and say that it, it it's our lives are going to change which I think is yeah as you say I, I can see why there might be a reason for that discord even if I was wasn't quite convinced that they belonged tonally to the same movie
2: we should talk about uh the central performances as well mm-hmm. so Joel Edgerton and Ruth Neger I thought were absolutely amazing
1: yeah so good they're both those kinds of performances where you're like acting doesn't need to be these, you know, much as I loved Mark Ruffalo's performance in Spotlight where he's like, it's not right. Mm. They knew, they knew everything. You know, much as those things can be great, you can also do an incredibly moving performance that doesn't need that scene, that can just be quiet and can be realistic. Because mm. often in real life, people don't have those moments where the like band starts to swell behind them as they deliver their monologue. And I do think that moment where Joel Edgerton says, just tell the judge I love my wife is really amazing and the scene where he gets home drunk and cries because mm. you're kind of worried that it might go another way but he's so he's just such a nice <laughs> <Yeah>. guy
2: because <laughs> there's been that slightly tense moment where he's been uh with some of his friends like having a few drinks and one of his black friends is like so you, now you know how it feels to be me all the time. Like you are vilified and outcast by everyone because of who you married, but you could make it stop tomorrow. If you just left her, mm. you'd go back to being a white man again and no one would ever trouble you. Mm. Whereas I can't do that. I'm always part of the oppressed class. Yeah. This is kind of like slightly tense banter between the guys. And then you're like, oh God, like what's... You're going to punch him. What's he going to take from this? Like, And then he, he's really drunk when he gets home and he starts crying and like, his wife's comforting and he's just like... I really, you know, you know, I can take care of you. Like, I could, and you realize that, like, the only thing that's upsetting him is, like, the fact that he can't write this wrong.
1: Yeah, of course. Ruth Negger's performance is just amazing and so, so good the whole way through. There's no one moment where you're like, oh, this is her scene because she carries the whole film.
2: Mm. Yeah. So there's a great bit when they illegally they move to a very, very rural, remote part of Virginia just after they can't take DC anymore and there's a scene when they arrive at this beautiful house in the absolute middle of nowhere and she gets out the car and she just kind of stands there really still for a and she closes her eyes and she kind of breathes it in mm. and the whole action of the thing just seems to stop and it's like oh she's feeling home again mm. and it's she barely moves but you can you can feel her feelings which mm. is ultimately what good acting does yeah um but yeah this film does have the usual based on a true story ending of some text on the screen telling you what happened to the people after mm-hmm. the events that you've seen and then some like real life photographs or I think one actually just one photograph that you've seen recreated in the film as well. And because I really like this film, I was fine with that, but I feel like you and I are not experiencing these like six weeks of cinema like most people are most people will not go and see every single based on a true story film that is out at the moment but we are so Mm. i have come down with what i call based on true story itis where i just can't take any more of this like any more like oh and here's the real person who really had Mm. oh i can't i wish i just want to watch some films that are about made up people
1: (laughs) yeah i do think that this is one that if it had not been based on the you know the people who actually won this seismic court case and had just been a portrait of two people who might have experienced the the brute force Mm. of these regressive laws at the time it would still work and it would still function as a whole film which is the test right yeah because this was a real exploration of how the political and the personal are completely intertwined and how a real life human family can really be hit by state interference and for me that's just something that will always be relevant and doesn't it, it doesn't have to be like extraordinary it doesn't have to be like the the one man who did this one thing that you would never thought would be mm. possible it's it, it's truer it's true in a deeper way yeah. and it you know that it affected loads and loads of families but this
2: is also just a really good film like mm-hmm. what this seeing this film really highlighted for me is that like we said last week when we talked about lion like lion is an okay film but you would not watch the film if it didn't have that based on a true story mm. aspect of it right mm-hmm. whereas, whereas this, you would I absolutely would I would read really a novel agree. of this like, I would see a play of this I would you know in the same way that Athol food guard play I mentioned like that's not about real people it yeah. was at the time it was the whole point of it was it was like the every man and woman like this ha- mm-hmm. this is happening to everybody mm. um and made that it was all the more powerful for that that the yeah. characters don't I don't think they even have names in that it doesn't play, need you to know. be
1: sensational it just can be true. Mm. And I yeah, I really liked that about this. So
2: I do think if you if you take one biopic forward from this Oscars season. Yeah, make it this one. Make it this one. i recommended that anna give the mobile game 80 days ago so she has got that on her phone and has been giving it a go uh have you found it anna so
1: technical issues meant i could only start playing this like yesterday so i haven't played loads of 80 days i'm on day eight okay. of my 80 day travels it's really fun. So as we sort of explained last week, it's basically a choose your adventure game where you are the assistant to Jules Verne.
2: I said this wrong last week. As soon as I started editing the podcast, I was like, "Oh, I've got this wrong. Jules Verne is the author of Around the World. Yeah, of yeah. days. The character is called Phileas Fogg. So
1: Phileas Fogg is your sort of like master and you're his valet, basically. Yeah, yeah. Whose name? Passer Patu. And yeah, so it's really fun. I, at first, didn't realise... So, you know, often when you play a game, the like talking parts are the bit that you sort of just like click, 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 oh, click, click, click. Oh, I see. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like Harry is like, I don't know, talking to Dumbledore, and you're like, yep, we get it, we get it. <laughs> Horcruxes, says, we get it. And then you're like clicking. Um, I was doing a bit of that at the beginning. <laughs> And you're meant to click on the response that you choose, and that obviously the whole game is dictated by it. So originally, I was talking to Fog like click, 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 and then I realised, oh shit, I've just made a bunch of choices, and I don't know what they are.
2: Yeah, <laughs> don't so know what they reflect on it. It is a kind of text based adventure almost, mm-hmm. where you're presented with a scenario, and you choose what Passenger going to do from a series of options, and then you get more options based on that, and it carries on. And you also the game is supposed to like learn from your responses so have you had it occasionally it comes up with like your character is now dependable
1: yeah the is... character is
2: now zesty <laughs> that's my favorite one i've had
1: both of those yeah i really like that so for example I, I drove a car somewhere and it was like oh how crazy are you gonna go kind of thing yeah i sort of have made this character a little bit crazy lust for lifey because when you get pre- when you're playing a game and you get presented with three options you always want to pick the least boring one And yeah, then I was like, do you know what? I'm not going to drive this car too crazy. (laughs) And then it was like, you are now dependable. You got fog to this place safely. It's really, really fun. And I've spent a lot of time sort of looking at the map being like, how fast can we get to places? Mm. I don't know whether like, can you finish this game and not
2: have made it round in 80 days? I think you can. I mean, I think I once killed him. I accidentally killed Fogg. Well, not killed, but like he died based on some bad decisions I've made. (laughs) I think he got cholera somewhere in Indonesia and died. So yeah, that obviously we didn't get around. I've also done it in like... 40 days cool um there is a you can basically cheat if you just walk around the North Pole oh my god <laughs> so you just go <laughs> You're a smart idiot so you just go like as far north as you can through Scandinavia and then there's normally a like mad expedition to the pole that you can join yeah and then you can just walk around the pole and That's come back
1: amazing. again <laughs> this is one of the things I was thinking about I was like it's not clear whether you just have to make it round the globe once or whether you have to go to as many places as possible on your trip there are different
2: objectives in the game so I can't remember where it is but there's a kind of achievements page where it shows you like how many of the 200 cities you visited how many continents you went to and obviously you can each time you play it this is the beauty of it you can play it for a different objective Mm. so sometimes you might just want to be you know going as fast as you can sometimes you might want to try and go to as many places as you can sometimes you might want to you know, take a route that you've never done before. Another route that I have really enjoyed is if you go all the way down through Europe and south through Africa, there are loads of really interesting airships and places that you can hang about in there. That's cool. And then you can just go like South Africa to Australia, to South America and back up again, Mm -hmm. which is quite fun
1: really cool yeah so I'm having a lot of fun even though it's only early days
2: so how have you found what is actually my favorite aspect of the game nerd as I am the like organizational side of it
1: yeah I feel like I when you get have a choice between sort of planning and exploring I just go for exploring Mm. and like talk to some you know drunk ladies or something in the in the place (laughs) that I'm currently in met some cool people in Amsterdam you know (laughs) so the planning side of it I'm just tend to be like which one leaves now
2: yeah so you can get really into that side of it and I actually wish sometimes that there was a a game mode where I could like, just do the buying and selling of stuff I'm really into that <laughs>
1: I haven't done any of that yet. so
2: you can pick up curios and stuff in each place sometimes it will tell you this is 50 pounds here but it's worth four thousand in Jakarta so then it's like your decision do you want to keep that thing in case you go to Jakarta and mm-hmm. then you'd have loads of money because if you don't do a bit of that then you do quite quickly run out of money
1: yeah I'm on, like, three grand. Mm. We'll see how long on it lasts. day eight, the
2: whole yeah. problem.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, thanks so much. It's great fun.
2: Another, just an aspect of this that we should mention that is really nice, it's written by a woman called Meg Jayanth. And I remember reading an interview with her at the time because she made a really conscious effort to include what is, you know, a story with two central male characters, basically, to include kind of female-centred and queer narratives in it mm-hmm. so depending on the choices that you make like two is definitely by. you can have oh. some like interesting adventures with him doing that oh, cool. I particularly recommend uh there's a nice guy that you meet in New Orleans who is very nice <laughs> um and also just whenever you get on a train or a boat or anything and you have the option to talk to people on it the driver of it is always a woman
1: Yeah, I mansplained my first driver. Mm. You could, like, choose to talk as her or as him, and I just sort of didn't think that I could talk as her, so I kept pressing me, and then she was like, you talk a lot, don't you, and stop talking to me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and, like, you can... I once got an exciting airship that was piloted by a a very heavily pregnant woman. Again, Passover 2 asked some really crass questions about, you know, when are you due? And she was like... But well, when I get there, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Ah, oh, yeah, it's a really,
1: it's a mixed like universe.
2: I think the game's maybe three pounds, two ninety nine. I think it's four ninety nine. Is four ninety nine? Okay, mm-hmm. I think it was three pounds on Android. But it's not one of those games where once you've completed it, you're not gonna play it. You can just play it myriad ways, so it's it's a good investment. So, what are you gonna recommend me for next week?
1: So for next week, I thought I'd recommend to you an album that I've been listening Ooh. to. So this album only came out on Friday. Gone. And it's called Process by Samfer. And it's kind of a soul album, I'd say, and it's just gorgeous. It's so I I just came across this track called Nobody Knows Me Like the Piano and just really loved it. And the video was really cool. And so then I thought, who is this guy? And yeah, the album just came out. And you said that you came across one of his songs on Spotify, whatever it's called, yeah. Discover. So
2: I think I'm pretty I think it was that song actually as it's a new release that makes sense Mm because I think they do try and mix some of that in I've got really into Spotify Discover I think because of the really random mix of stuff that I listen to on Spotify it's mostly like generic classical music for when I'm working or new things that I haven't bought either a physical or a digital copy of yet Mm -hmm. my Discover playlist every Monday is a you know totally random mixed bag of could be anything and I quite like that.
1: (laughs) Sounds very eclectic I have to say.
2: Like it's been recommending me a lot of things that are a bit like the La La Land soundtrack. Oh that's great. Uh, But also you know some things that are like Beethoven. Cool. So uh, somehow it came up with that song this week.
1: Great well I hope this slots into your very eclectic library.
2: And just before we go, listeners, we've got one more thing we'd like to ask you to do, which is we are currently doing a survey to find out a bit more about our listeners and the kind of things that you like us to do. So if you've got five minutes just to click some options about what TV, film, etc. you like, go to seriouslypod, S-R-S-L-Y-P-O-D forward slash survey and take part.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the
2: New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who's left us iTunes reviews in the last couple of weeks. Please keep them coming if you can, because it really helps other people find out about the podcast. Our
1: next event, another Harry Potter quiz, goes on sale on the 15th of February at midday. Make sure you're following us on social media so you don't miss out on the chance to buy tickets.
2: On our website, seriouslypod.com, you can find all our back episodes, plus our specials on Home Alone, Gilmore Girls, Harry Potter, Love Actually and Friends.
1: We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Tumblr and Facebook. We're srslypod on all of them.
2: We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or just hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com
1: And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast.